I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can holler ass and travel with portable speakers playing Baja's scats. Wish I had a million dollars. Wish I had a million albums. Wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish the help was like it's like. I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels. I wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better rhyming scheme. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lime bean. I wish that I could spread my wings. I wish that I had seven limbs. That way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kinda understand it. Wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic rock. <laughs> Focused on myself. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like. I wish, I wish that every time we love it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we move it, it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It's just. Hello, cats and kittens. I'm back. Brianna Joy Gray, your host of The Debrief. It's me, the Brian Debrief. I'm going to keep re-articulating that pun until everybody gets it. <laughs> oh, we had a little bit of a departure of an episode on Bad Faith today. I posted a, an episode I recorded a couple of weeks ago with Brown Professor of Economics, Glenn Lowry, who very generously invited me to Brown to speak to his students. And we also, at that time, recorded an episode for his podcast. Um, he shared the audio files with us so I could share them with you. Figured the more people who listen to this kind of thing, the better. I hope you enjoyed it. We are doing the um, column a little bit earlier today. I'm trying something out. I know I'm conflicting with a bunch of other people. I apologize for that. This won't be a regular time. Um, but I confess to be a little exhausted this week, and I'm trying to get back on some kind of a sleep schedule. So I appreciate your patience with me. And let's just get right into it. Chris, first in the queue, how are you doing this evening? What's on your mind? Hey, you're cutting in and out again like the other day. Uh, I don't know if you're open in another window. Oh, I definitely the had the call in open, but I will close that right out. Thank you for that, Chris. Yeah. I know every time you see me at the top, you're like, God damn it, this asshole again. But, <laughs> no, not, not at all. What's in your mind? Um, I was right at the top of the queue the other day. Had a mm-hmm. few things I wanted to just kind of throw a few things at you and let you respond kind of to whatever, uh, whatever you'd like. Um, one was this article about Diane Feinstein that was in the New York times uh, mm-hmm. on Monday night when, when you were live, it had just popped. And I just wanted to read one, 
one paragraph from it. At 88, this is a quote from New York Times article. At 88, Ms. Feinstein sometimes struggles to recall the names of colleagues frequently as little recollection of meetings or telephone conversations, and at, at times walks around in a state of befuddlement, including about why she is increasingly dogged by questions about why she, whether she is fit to serve in the Senate, representing 40 million residents of California. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious what you think about that and whether there should be, I don't want to be ageist because like, like Bernie's 80 or 81. I think he's as cognitively there as he's ever been. Mm-hmm. Then you have, you know, Joe Biden, who's a year or two younger than him and it's hit or miss. And, but there's certainly people in there. My mom has a client who's 75 and, Oh, now you're you're coming choppy for me, Chris. And just curious, any sort of way of handling this issue of politicians staying too long. Um, and then any comments on Jankowitz and her position? Um, I hadn't really heard you say anything about that yet. I think I've seen a few tweets about it, but curious what you're thinking about that is uh the alu loss at that other facility on staten island um and then uh chris smalls tweeted a couple hours ago uh i just met the president he told me he got him in Mm -hmm. trouble and he's good or something like that which is awesome um I'll leave it at that. That's a bunch already. That's a bunch of stuff. I might not get yeah. to all of this, Chris, but um, I don't think there should be age limits. I think that people should not persist in jobs when they are cognitively disin- you know, disinclined. <laughs> I don't believe in age limits either, but what's the mechanism for holding? Right. Her- well, the mechanism should be – I'm just going to speed through these if you don't, if you don't mind, Chris. <laughs> The, without a lot of follow-ups, just because you put a lot on the table already. But the, okay. the mechanism should be democracy. People shouldn't keep voting for people who are obviously not, uh, who are obviously cognitively impaired. And the only reason we're in the situation where Feinstein exists is because we have a Democratic Party who won't let go of its leadership um, and who will rally behind these folks who they know will toe the party line. It's the same way, it's the same reason why we have Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and everybody in the Democratic Party is in their 70s. It's not because we like these people. It's because the institution refuses to let newcomers in. And we just saw that again in a really ugly demonstration of that with Nina Turner in uh, Ohio. My brother told me, he's in Cleveland right now with the rest of my family who just moved there. And he told me that they frankly thought it was going to be more of a blowout given how insane the advertising was and the nonstop barrage against Nina Turner every time you turn on the television. They were like, happy that it was you know she got 30 percent of the vote because of just how overwhelming the force the advertising was and that's what dmfi corporate dollars will get you so that's diane feinstein the jankowitz stuff uh we've been talking about it all week on rising i've been hosting this week you guys can check out all of those clips i mean it's silly we talked about it today we played some clips of the the hearing uh and it was some of the most hilarious stuff I, for those of you who haven't heard it. I mean, I don't know. It's pretty cringe. Uh, do you want me to play the, the, please <laughs> the, the TikTok? I have a, okay. oh, no, don't play that <laughs> or do, but <laughs> I don't know. I, let's, let's hear from the, let's hear from the people. Do you guys yeah. want to, want to get into the super califragilistic, 
hilarity again. Just play it. Let's hear it one more time. Okay. Okay. Let me, let me pull it up. I should probably just play the bit from rising because, um, not only did we talk about that, we talked about the, uh, the hearing and, uh, what was it? A Senator Kennedy made a pretty funny joke (laughs) about it in his cross examination here. I'm going to, I think I can find it. Let me just hop ahead a little bit. Here we go. And over its hiring of Mina Yankovic, the disinformation board's newly appointed leader, who went viral on TikTok for this. Information laundering is really quite ferocious. It's when a hoster takes some lies and makes them sound precocious by saying them in Congress or a mainstream outlet so Disinformation's origins are slightly less atrocious. <laughs> it's how you hide a little hide a little lie. It's how you hide a little hide a little lie. It's how you hide a little hide a little lie when Rudy Giuliani shared that intel from Ukraine. Or when TikTok influencers say COVID can cause pain. They're laundering uh-huh. disinfo when we really should take note and not support their lies with it does. It's taking the journey from cringe to actually, in, like, it's so cringe, I now enjoy watching. Hey, I saw your shoulders bobbing there when we played oh, that back. Robbie liked it. For the record, Robbie liked it. Senator Kennedy questioned Mayorkas about Yakovich's TikTok account and her views on Hunter Biden's laptop. Here's what he had to say. When, when the department picked her, was the department aware of her TikTok videos? Uh, Senator, um, uh, I they're, was... They're really quite precocious. <laughs> um, uh, Senator, um, I was not uh, aware... Okay, like, that's hilarious. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm going to play you a little bit more because Mallorca's does not come off well here and it's worth listening to. <laughs> they're really quite precocious, really sent me. Okay. Uh, ...of those videos... When you, uh, when the department picked her, did did it know that she had said that Mr. Hunter Biden's laptop is Russian disinformation? Um, Senator, uh, let me let me uh, repeat myself and add one uh, other fact. I was not aware of that. Uh, we do not discuss the internal hiring process. Ultimately, it's the secretary. I'm responsible for the decisions of the Department of Homeland Security. Well, that was. <laughs> yeah, he would like really just filibusters and refused to answer the question. There was this back and forth where he was like, did you did you look at her social media? And some combination of him saying like, no, we didn't even vet her or what her opinions were before hiring this to the her hiring her to this position and also not recognizing that maybe you just don't care that she's biased and that she's a liberal. Then just own that and just say that and say that I don't think I don't credit um, I think that she was right about Trump voters spreading disinformation and just stand stand in your truth and just be ideological. But he was really wormy in his answer. And so, you know, I, I think there's not a lot of utility to this. I think it's, there's already a lot of distrust in government and a world where people actually like the government and thought it knew what it was do, it was doing. Something like this might fly better. But in a world where a lot of people are now seeing that the disinformation is coming fast and furious from the people who think they hold all the authority on these matters, whether it's the masks, ma- mask information back and forth about what the requirements should be. This latest business with the, uh, the correspondents that are becoming a super spreader event, um, the Hunter Biden laptop story on, on and on. People are just over it. It's silly. And I feel like there was something one other thing that you said you asked me about. Uh, um uh alu lost but i did want to th- there was one that can i throw out instead mm, uh I okay saw something from from uh 
and just as an aside, back on Jankowitz, anybody who hasn't watched the video of her singing, the video is an essential <laughs> visual aspect of it, and you should go watch it because it really, it, like, the song is plenty, but the video is extra. It's really special. <laughs> um, but I saw something from Stoller, and I don't remember his exact verbiage, but he said he said something like, instead of student debt relief like a like trying to zero out uh student debt but also helping people who already paid off their debt and and i have some sympathy for that i've mm-hmm. paid off my debt i had help uh doing that and and i'm fortunate for for that but um you know and i don't feel this way but i do have sympathies for people who are like i paid off my debt and everybody you know, I got out of favor. No, no, I, I, I hear you, Chris. The, the question is, I don't think anybody has a problem with that, but how does Matt Stoller plan for that to happen? I just saw uh, 240 characters, so I didn't read Yeah, anymore. that's the thing. I, I, Matt Stoller was on Rising today, and you guys should check that clip. I always love talking to him, and I've been trying to get him on the podcast. He's just been going back and forth with some scheduling stuff because I want to talk about some of this anti-monopoly stuff in the context of Elon Musk. And so maybe when he's on, I'll also ask him about this. I, I, like I've said before, I said at the top of my Rising on, on my radar on student debt last week, I would love to give everybody who paid off their loans money. I'm, I'm happy to give everybody the money. I paid off my undergrad loans you know <laughs> so i don't i have no problem with that i would love to get that money back but i just don't know what the mechanism is again people need to be really clear the reason we're talking about student debt is because it's something that can be done by executive order not because we think it's the most important policy that exists in america last thing and then i'm going to hang up because i know i keep egging on chris you keep saying last thing anarchist Anna varian uh video last night uh, have you seen it? Any yeah, do you guys want to pl- listen to that real quick, too, for those who haven't? And I'll hang up so I don't keep saying one last thing. Yeah. Um, let's see. How quickly can I pull this up? I bet if I just go to Twitter and type in Anna Kasparian, if I could, I could go to Jimmy Dore's page and I know I could find a tweet real quick. But let me... Arian, let me pull this up very quickly. The, the gist of it is that this last thing with Nina Turner seems to be... Um, the tipping point for her where she's now echoing the sentiments that people like all of us throughout force the vote and notably uh, Jimmy Dore have been saying for, is it years now over a year now, uh, which is that we're very deeply disappointed in the democratic party. And this, these many of these progressives have sold out the movement. Here you go. We don't even have paid family leave. Oh, we wait. don't even have, no, no, no. This is that. That's her rant on abortion, which is also pretty good. Oh goodness. Well, maybe I won't be able to, Oh, here it is. No, no, that's, that's a different rant. Wow, there's a lot of Anna Kasparian rants on the internet right now. Okay, here we go. So, Here's the Jimmy so Dore one. I don't know what I don't know what she means, but anyway, that was the end of the Young Turks when they did that. Sorry, here we go. Right that Anna has today. They don't care. <laughs> they don't. Those kinds of laws are Republicans. And yet, what do you want them to do with their kids <laughs> when they have to go to work? What do you want them to do? What do you want them to do? I want them to answer question. Answer the question. Journalists, ask them the question. Ask them. Ask them. Ask them. Goddamn question. God. Isn't it amazing that not one Democrat has shown 1% of the passion that Anna has today? They don't care. They don't care. They're fine. They're all so old. They don't even have to worry about 
them. And if they're young enough where it would affect them, they'll get their abortion. They're going to okay? fly to they're Paris. They're trading individual stocks, enriching themselves. They're good. They're good. They don't care about you. But I'm going to tell you to vote for them. <laughs> Every election. So nobody, nobody is confused about what Jimmy Dore's commentary is going to be. Like, this is obviously really validation. It, for her, the abortion issue is the tipping point of dem- a demonstration of how the Democrats are not ever going to do anything. Of course, Joe Biden, when asked in the last couple of days whether or not he would get rid of the filibuster, he says he's basically not there yet. I covered all of this in my radar from yesterday. If you want to go and check that out, um, yeah, I think a lot of folks are glad that she's finally here. I saw a friend of the show, Afini, tweeting that like this is like good to hear from her. And some people push back against Afini saying, well, I don't know, you know, it's too late and I don't know if you believe it. And, you know, dragging up some stuff from Anna Kasparian's background and some things she said in the interview with Madeleine Albright. And Afini says, yeah, keep one eye open for sure. I understand why you might not think very much of this, but it's better, you know. I'm glad that she's finally here, even if it's late. And even if you don't really trust your judgment on things going forward. So that's kind of how I feel about it. Like, welcome to the party. It's frustrating. I know why Jimmy Dore is laughing. It's frustrating to have the people who pushed back so hard against us and called us names. And, you know, she personally smeared me and accused me of, you know, stepping on the name of a mutual friend of ours who's deceased. And I found that to be very hurtful and unethical. But at the end of the day, I'm glad that she's come around because it's bigger than all of that. And I look forward to hearing her criticisms of the squad and their failure to live up to the promises um, they made to get elected by people like us and with small dollar donations from people who don't have very much to give. So thank you, Chris. I'm going to hop around a little bit. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Guy Nunn. That's not a familiar name to me. Oh, Guinan. LOL. I'm sorry. I didn't even see the um, <laughs> the avatar. Unmute yourself and let me know what's in your mind, Guinan. Hey, Bree. Hey. Um, I just wanted to um, give you props for the conversation that you had with um, Glenn Lowry. Like, you were pretty amazing. Um, and Thank I you. think that <laughs> I think that part of, I mean, building this alliance is disabusing um, people on the right of all these myths and propaganda uh, about America. Um, I know that you, you um, I mean, we, we differ, I think, in terms of like how much I would say there's good things in America. Um, I mean, just looking at the history of uh, all these like, founding fathers who are not even internally consistent in their professed ideology and how they wanted to expand into more native land and, and um, England didn't want to let them. They wanted to uh, stop the expansion of slavery, England. Mm -hmm. And so like all these aristocrats who wanted to do these awful things uh, to people um, like are just propped up, put on pedestals I mean, there's the whole thing. I'm Mexican. So the the whole thing with manifest destiny Mm -hmm. of uh, expansion and, and kind of bullying Mexico out, um, out of all this territory um, because they knew that they could take them militarily. Um, And, and then like, wouldn't you know it after the treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, uh, they found gold in California um and it, it's just 
to me, like, I mean, Jacques Chirac, uh, former president of France, said that France would would slide into the rank of a third-rate power if it weren't for Africa. And mm-hmm. India, uh, like, was robbed, I think, of a trillion pounds, maybe, uh, by the UK. And, and so, like, you know, there's so many examples. Mexico and Cuba took in more Jewish refugees after World War II than the mm-hmm. U.S. did. And and U.S. is painted as like the the hero of World War II mm-hmm. when Russia lost about 20 million people and they caused mm-hmm. the most uh, casualties in, in Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like there's just so much propaganda. Uh, and I've heard many, many different academics, activists talk about how propagandized American people are. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is an essential step to uh, getting people to understand uh, that we need, we, we, we've been lied to, we need to make serious changes in the way that we think about this, the history, because that connects to our, our actual, our current reality of, of just uh, corporate rule of uh, our government and, and just how slowly we've been shifted to the right. Uh, both parties, like Obama said, he would have been a moderate Republican and we've just, mm-hmm. that's happened underneath our noses. And so like yeah. in order for us to connect with people uh, on the right, like I think like we need to get to get them to understand on certain issues. I, I think they won't budge, but on certain issues, I think we can get them to budge if we start to correct the narrative of. Yeah, of, I like, think that's right. History. And that's exactly why we're not, that, that that there's an attack on CRT. It's not an attack on CRT, which we you know can say for the zillionth effing time is not being taught in anybody's elementary school, et cetera, et cetera. It's an attack on teaching any narrative about the history of America that doesn't say America is the best place on earth and the best place that's ever been on earth and the best people on earth. And this is the rhetorical shorthand. I mean, you 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 very you know rightly describe that part of the rhetorical project, but that's only half the game. The other half of the game is to say, because America is the best place on earth, we don't have to talk about the ways that it could be better. And it's a regressive agenda. It's to say, we don't have to talk about improving America because we're going to recast any desire to make America better, identify its flaws and rehabilitate them as an anti-patriotic condemnation of America. Because it's, it's basically saying, if you don't admit it's perfect, you must hate America. Which is incredibly stupid. I just cannot, I cannot stress enough how stupid, how, how complete galaxy brain this logic is. I'm getting a little frustrated because I'm reflecting on the fact that I did this debate with Charlie Kirk last week, which is supposed to be coming out today. And I'm frustrated by it because I got triggered. I'm not going to lie. I got triggered by this because here, here's the game. When I was talking to Andrew Sullivan, I strategically decided to try to make this point without talking about race. Because when you're talking to people like this, if you say race exists, there are, you know, if you even say that, like, people identify as racist, they will say, oh, that's racist. I mean, that's race isn't real. Like, we're all one humanity. You know, like, <laughs> biological racism is, is, a, is a white supremacist project. You know, that's they, they are there. They know what to do here. Right. Like, they have a whole rhetorical thing. It's like, yeah, great. Race isn't real. And that means magically slavery didn't happen. And there weren't racial codes in the country. Like you guys are the ones that decided to invent this concept called race and legislate on it for 4,400 years. Like that wasn't me. That was y'all don't now gaslight me and pretend that I invented race and racism, but that's, that's what they do. Right. And so there's this, 
this rhetorical dance that all leads to this place where you cannot use race to explain and racism to explain any of the reasons why America has been bad in the past. So strategically with Andrew Sullivan, I decided to go with, you know, obviously the founding fathers were made a grave mistake because how dare they not get full rights to non-landowning white men? I mean, won't somebody think of the non-landowning white men? Right. Just just take it away from race and take it away from gender, too, because if you bring up gender these days, I swear to God, if one more person tries to, like, gotcha me with birthing people like like they they will take this is the libs of TikTok project. They will take whatever the newest, arguably most absurd thing is and make you have an opinion on something that never would have crossed my path. I think that's probably the first time in my life just now that I've ever said the words birthing people. And it makes you like this happened on Rising today. Like Robbie made a clip about it, and you know I I, I love Robbie. Like this isn't you know a thing, but I I felt like I was being asked to either condemn the phrase birthing people or say I think it's great. Neither of which is true, right? Like yeah. it is true that there are you know trans men who end up getting pregnant, and. If I met one, <laughs> if I were talking about one, if I was describing one, like I would use the, the word person or just like he's pregnant. It's like not a big deal. But they elevate like the weird awkwardness of the novelties in, in, in a modern society to being the be all end all like litmus test for whether you're a crazy lib who's trying to force this ideology down our throat or not. I'm off on a tangent. I apologize. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> the, the point is that like I, I agree with you. That it, it is this educational piece that's so necessary. And I wish sometimes that these people would want to have debates with actual historians. They never do. They never want to have a debate with an actual historian, with someone who actually teaches CRT, who's someone who can hit them with, you know, a fi- 50 specific examples of uh, de jure racism or ex- other kinds of uh, exclusion based on identity in this country. And ask them, well, was this part when America was being great and equal? And, you know, if we've had this many amendments to the Constitution, why are you so committed to the idea that the original Constitution was like aces? You know, if we've had this many, um, you know, we just obviously had this episode or did we unlock the episode today? We were supposed to unlock the episode today um, about the Supreme Court hearings that Biden had last summer with Nico Bowie, who's now a tenure professor at Harvard, um, Ilhan Ilhan, uh, Werman, who was – a conservative who testified at the hearings and Eric Siegel, friend of the pod, who's been on a bunch of times, a, a Georgia law professor and talking about you know, whether or not we should, you know, disempower the court, basically say that it doesn't actually have any constitutional power to do judicial review. And why are we listening to it anyway? And, you know, that that in that conversation, Nico Bowie is making the point that if you look at all, we have this idea as liberals, and this was the, this was also the subject of my radar yesterday. If you look at uh, of all the Supreme Court cases, liberals have this idea that su- the Supreme Court is this check and balance uh, that's supposed to be anti-majoritarian, and it works for us because it protects uh, persecuted minorities. And it is true that the Supreme Court is supposed to be anti-majoritarian and protect minorities, but it was designed to protect elite minorities, you know, those landowning white men. And it has historically protected those corporate interests without fail, except for maybe four or five cases. Literally, it's just four or five cases. And you can argue that they're big ones, Obergefell, Brown v. Board, etc. But when you look at the gestalt of everything, you know, what did Brown v. Board do if schools are just as segregated now as they were back in the day? A lot of people at the time wanted the, the um, NAACP Legal, NAACP Legal Defense Fund to adopt a strategy of 
um, enforcing separate be equal and getting resources to black schools instead of integrating in a way that really was a devastating hit to the black middle class and black teachers and black doctors and all these independent black institutions. Like they, you know, there's, there's an argument that we were in the like cultural trajectory toward gay marriage. And so many States had, um, passed it already. And that, you know, what is the cost benefit is basically the argument that he's making. And he's saying that it's not worth having Supreme court because it's been such a barrier to progress nine times out of 10 in the history of America. Democracy has actually been a better protector of minority rights. And, you know, why am I saying all of that? I'm saying all of that just to say that I do agree with you wholeheartedly that getting that like historical perspective of America getting it wrong, the Supreme Court getting it wrong, all of these things getting it wrong is so crucial to the progressive project. And I, it is so frustrating for that reason that we're, we seem to be losing <laughs> on that ground. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I'd like to see more brought up is the whole idea of the social contract. Because this is something that, that's bugged me for so long that we came into these societies and gave authority to leaders uh, in exchange for certain things and versus having like a social Darwinist kind of hellhole um, where everybody's out for themselves and you're not sharing, you're, you know, you're hoarding this or hoarding that. And we're just kind of recreating that still. Like we're yeah. supposed to be in a society where there's like a safety net for people. And yet we're creating a social Darwinist hellhole within this and, and saying that we're a society, which it just is contradictory to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm totally with you, Guinan. Uh Love that, obviously, by the way. Uh, I, I feel... I, I sometimes feel unsure as to whether I should be discouraged here or whether this is all like an internet online phenomenon, because part of why we have, we're having this backlash, right. is because we have slowly started to win over the last few years. My mother, my mother's generation grew up with no education about America's flaws. You know, they had to find it themselves. My mother had instruction from her father who was in the nation of Islam and brought and had a, had an education in the household and at Howard about black history and a more authentic history of the United States of America. And only in the last, you know, like nineties, early odds, did we get some pushback in textbooks, et cetera. Part of why I fell in love with history of science as a major is that it is, and it is a kind of alternative history of the world. Um, and you get, you do get a lot of that in colleges, which is why I guess they hate college so much. <laughs> these, these conservatives hate college so much. All of these, all of these disciplines, women's studies, gender studies, race studies, they're all just history. It's just history. It's the same thing that everyone's been learning. It's history. It's just from a different perspective. It's just not, you know, World War II for the 15th time. Like we have to learn in high school, um, and manifest destiny and all of that stuff. So, I, I'm with you and I'm, I'm not entirely sure how much this is like a backlash against the fact that we kind of have won this culture war or whether there's a real fear that we're going to have to go back to learning that America is great and wonderful in schools. Cause I think that there's a really um, harsh political consequences for that. This is what's scary about like being, having so much emphasis on STEM 
fields mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and at the expense of other fields that mm-hmm. critically examine all these topics. If you're just focused on science, you, you're just not going to have any context, any like critical, any critique of what's presented to you. And, and I think that might be by design. A hundred percent, a hundred percent is by design, Guinan. Thank you so much for calling Thank in. You. I obviously got carried away. I've been talking to you, I feel like, for like 20 <laughs> minutes, but I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Me too. Thanks. All right, Omar. I haven't seen you in a while. What's up? Can you unmute yourself? There you go. What's on your mind? I'm sorry, Omar, you're coming in a little muffled for me. Hold on. Omar, you're, I'm just hearing beeps now. Is that, is that any better? Yeah, I can hear you now. What's on your mind? Um, I just wanted to talk basically about the, the whole Bernie episode. Um, I don't know. My only contribution is I feel like sometimes there was too much writing on him after the campaign. I mean, not to necessarily make excuses, but it just seems to me like we were kind of expecting too much from you know, a 70-plus-year-old um, senator. And I, it was pretty disappointing because it seemed like the mantle was going to be set for the rest of the the squad that was coming in, mm-hmm. which is obviously not, not not what ended up panning out. So that was my only contribution on that. I don't know. I feel like as young leftists, like, <laughs> we should be, quote-unquote, organizing more or doing more on our behalf after, after the Sanders campaign. But... Um, that was basically the only thought on that. And the only thing I want to bring up the Amber Heard trial, because it seems sure. like nobody's speaking too much about it. Um, but more of the sense of how she kind of approached the whole, like, oh, who's going to believe you about about this whole abusive component that was supposed to be a part of the relationship. So just just the gender dynamics on that. Yeah, so I haven't been following it at all. And I have seen the internet say that, you know, this is an example of why, you know, Me Too goes too far and women can really take advantage of the believe women and all of that stuff. And I've seen the internet be very sympathetic to Johnny Depp. I have had someone close to me observe that they actually watch the trial and that the internet is misrepresenting this somewhat. So I'm really reluctant to say, I got to say. I, I, I cannot weigh in. I don't want to say something that's based on the internet's characterization of this. If it's not actually true, you know, have you been, have you been watching the actual trial? Yeah. I'm sorry. You're cutting out again. I'm sorry, Omar. I can't hear you. Um, but if anybody else has been watching uh, the trial and wants to weigh in, uh, please do. Thank you, Omar. Uh, Sylvester, you're up next. Unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind this evening. Sylvester, did I call on you prematurely? Like, you guys know I'm hopping around. Don't make a liar out of me. Like, I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to make you guys happy. I'm doing what you guys want me to do. You know? Okay, I'm going to the front of the queue because you guys are ready. Eric Gray. Cousin Eric, what's on your mind? Um, let's see. A lot. Um, given, I guess, given the whole 
topic of CRT. I mean, I, I teach in Florida for God's sake. Mm-hmm. So this has been like culture war central for this crap. Um, <sighs> I find myself having to clear up like terrible history and I'm like, this isn't even my subject. Can you give me an example? Can you think of an example? Okay. So this is before, this was like last year before this, this mess started. Um, toward the end of the school year, I mean, I mean, it was June, so I was the only one really bringing up anything about Pride history. Mm-hmm. So, like, the Stonewall riots, etc. You know, the whole leading to Pride Month itself, all that. Um, and then clearing up some some things about Black history that I had to do this year during Black History Month. Myself and a security guard, of course. Um mm-hmm. And said security guard went to HBCU, so that was also fun. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, a lot of it is really. Again, I I teach math, and I have to come and clear, and I have to come and clear some of this up. So, what's the deal, like, Eric, with all of the math textbooks in Florida that they you know, put on the ban list? That's based on a fake photo. What's the fake photo? Tell us more. Explain it to us. Um, Give us the local perspective. Shit. Um, (laughs) As far as I... Now, now, granted, I understand this. I don't know. You know Farron Cousins, right? Farron Cousins? Yeah, Ring of Fire. Um, No, I thought you were talking about, you know, you're Eric Gray from the Gray side, and I got confused because I do have cousins on my mom's side whose last name are Cousin, and I'm like, Eric, what's happening? No, 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 no. But no... But no, Farron's also out of Florida, and he he talked about it on his channel. Um, apparently, it's some fake photo that some of these conservatives are freaking out about, and and like, well, and then you have Governor DeSantis, you you have Miss Mr. Wannabe Trump over here. Um, well, we took a stand against these textbooks that have CRT in it, right? But what is in them? So. Again, what I understand is just is like they're getting triggered over certain like whatever language or like I guess oh they're talking about um same sex stuff or in a math uh, book I I don't that's what like if if John and Sam invite a hundred people to their wedding and only eighty people show up I how many some, extra dinner plates do they have to pay for something, <laughs> something stupid like that and it's it's like. I have to think about this. I'm like, I've looked in multiple math books and have never seen anything like that ever. So what the hell? And like I said, they're hiding, they're hiding the real problem in Florida. They're hiding the real, like the bullshit, all the rent and shit going up, all, all, all the bullshit down here. Um, yeah. I'm reading a Washington post article from a few days ago. Well, from April 29th about this and it's, you know, laying, laying out what happened um, it says uh, the move, you know, uh, this month, 54 of the 132 math books, uh, most of them elementary level did not make the cut. Some of the books did not align with state content standards called the benchmarks for excellent student thinking or best, or they included, quote, prohibited topics and, quote, unsolicited strategies such as critical race theory, officials said in the statement. Other reasons for rejection included, quote, inclusions of common core, the education testing standards the state eliminated, and the, quote, unsolicited addition of social 
emotional learning and mathematics. I Googled that SEL, by the way, and it doesn't seem like anything. It's like, it's like if you teach and you're nice to people, students retain knowledge better if you just are nice, basically. <laughs> like strategies to help students feel at ease in class. Like I don't understand how anybody could be upset about this. It's Florida. You get used to this stupid shit like this. Um, yeah, like I said, when you come down here, it's like a parallel universe. And honestly, you know, you know we're... Some areas we're dealing with math. Obviously, we're dealing with math teacher shortages everywhere. But you figure it'd be the worst down south, and and again, like this whole culture war thing isn't helping, and and it's just like now now you're attacking te- now you're attacking teachers because you want to look good for a presidential run. Yeah, and it's it's like, bro, what 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 the fuck, like. Like why? Yeah. There's there's no good there's no good reason for this. And and speaking of um and I guess I'll lump this in with um re- with reaching across the aisle to people with left and right. Um how are we defining left in this country though? In Honestly, what context? No, I'm saying politically. Like how are we defining left? Right, but are you talking to me? Are you talking to a, a layman? I mean, we I mean, all know I mean, what we mean by left. I mean, uh, whose definition are you upset about? Because I think everyone on this call understands no, not, what we mean by no, left. I'm, no, no, I'm not upset by definition. I just always, I guess that's where I get. That's where I always ask people in general, like, where, what is your definition of left here? Well, actually, and, and, I, talk- and I guess, and I guess, when I say this, I also talk to conservatives too. So that's also something else too. Yeah. So the problem is I was talking to Robbie about this actually during a commercial break today or break between segments. That's not a commercial break. And um, I was telling him how cringe it is for me to hear people say, you know, we refer to the broad, we refer to the right all the time. And we mean all basically the whole spectrum. We mean you kind of like your average Republican who's not necessarily fond of Trump to the most radical Marjorie Green person. When we talk about the broad left, there's no good word for that that doesn't also sound like you maybe you're actually talking about what we say when we mean the left. The problem of defining leftists with the word left is that it can sound like when someone makes a criticism of the broad left, they're actually making a, a criticism of us, and that gets me triggered. So people will say things like, the left is obsessed with identity politics. And I'm like, well, no, we're not. And I know that they don't – I can't even tell sometimes if they mean us, that they know we even exist, if they're talking about all of us or if they're talking about liberals. And so, yeah, there's that language slippage, and I'm not really sure what to do about it. When we're talking about uh, like the noun of it all, I guess. Um, I, I, get- I guess they're both nouns. But when I'm saying like a leftist – it's clear when I'm talking about when, but I don't know what to do about the fact that there's no broad term for liberals and leftists together as a broad constituency. Yeah. It just seems like everybody's like, at least when you talk to people on the right, it seems like they're, they're lumping everything together. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you, and I look at some of them like, bro, what the fuck? <laughs> like, yeah. Well, that's a good reason to have time to actually like understand what these things mean. Um, yeah, I think that's a good reason for us to, you know, have political parties as well to be able to identify something completely separate and apart from liberals. I think is politically useful. 
But I appreciate you calling in, Eric, and giving us the report from down south, as always. That's my unfortunate pleasure. <laughs> All right. Take care of yourself, Eric. Keep fighting the good fight. Look look alive, people, in the back of the line. I'm coming to you, Miss Mary. Miss Mary Mack, not dressed in black. What's on your mind this evening? Hey, Bree, can you hear me? I can. What's up, Miss Mary? Hey, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. What's on your mind this evening? Well, um, I had one of those experiences today on the episode that um, I bet a lot of people do when you're listening to a podcast and you hear something that, like, makes you start to, like, scream at your phone. Um, and then I realized, like, <laughs> and then I realized, like, wait a minute, I can just call in and tell her this. <laughs> um when y'all were having the conversation about Medicare for all and um, taking health insurance away from people who like their plans, mm-hmm. um, I think it's really important that those of us who want universal health care to remember when we're talking to people who say, well, I like my plan. I don't want to get rid of my plan. Why are you taking it away? Mm-hmm. To remind them that, um, you know, your quote-unquote good health insurance is only as good in proportion to your own health. Because mm. there is a, whatever plan you have, what there is a level of sick, there's a level of disabled, there's a level of chronic condition you can get to that suddenly that good health insurance is terrible. Mm. And I'll give you an, a case in point. I used to work with a woman um, at a previous job I had. So we worked together. We sat, you know, 10 feet apart from each other in our office. Um, we, so obviously we had the same insurance company. I'm um, healthy. I don't need a lot of health care. Still relatively young. Thank you very much. So, like, our health care, our health, so, like, that healthcare plan was quote unquote good for me because I go to the eye doctor, I go to the dentist, I go for my regular checkups. That's it. Well, this woman was the sole provider of a family of five. Her husband and two of her children have chronic medical conditions that mm-hmm. required multiple doctor's visits, medications, procedures, all kinds of stuff. And she hated our insurance, right? Mm-hmm. So she thought we had a terrible plan. And, oh, by the way, we're nurses. Everyone assumes nurses has this great health insurance, and we don't. Mm -hmm. We don't get any special favors just because we're nurses, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really important thing to remember when we're having those debates with with conservatives or liberals or whoever who's like, but I like my plan. And it's Mm -hmm. like, "Mm," but, like, without being too personal, you kind of go – Think about how healthy you are, though, and, like, mm-hmm. how much are you actually – because, again, like, this is a consumer good, right? Health insurance is – it's a consumer good. So you have to think of, like, how much are you actually consuming it versus whether or not it's a quality plan that's actually going to take care of you and your family if you need it. Yeah, I think that's an important point. I thought at, that, at first, actually, when you started talking that you were going to say it's only as good as your ability to stay employed, which is... Oh, well, <laughs> I mean, that too. <laughs> but, you know, it's not an argument that I necessarily wanted to bring up with Glint, with Professor Lowry, because, you know, he's a tenured professor at Brown. He he really is set, as set as a person can be in this world. 
Yeah, and I, I mean, and I'm a nurse, so I am too. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I have a job where I'm never going to be without a job. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean, you know, that that doesn't mean that my health is always going to be good. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean I'm not going to get in a horrific car wreck and be, mm-hmm. become disabled. It doesn't mean I'm not going to get cancer, right? Mm-hmm. You know, knock on wood, none of those things happen. And none of those things happen to anyone. But, like, I think that's an important thing to remember when we're having those debates with people who say, well, I like my health insurance and yeah. want to leave it at that. I confess I didn't listen, re-listen to this one before we posted it. Um, I've been, like I said, having a hell of a week with this rising stuff. I am not a good multitasker. Um, but my recollection is that, um, you know, he's just so, he was, he's such a, a nice guy. <laughs> Yeah, he's such a nice guy that it was almost like I felt like I almost didn't have to say anything when he was kind of making those glib statements about how I'm set. So, you know, it's fine. I don't think, you know, he hears himself. He's obviously doing it in a kind of cheeky way. So I don't know that he needs me to say, well, that is a monstrous belief if you actually believe it. You know, and he doesn't, he tends to decline to getting into his kind of personal family background. But, you know, he's a black man in his 70s who has seen some things and has family members that are, you know, in an economic situation that is common to most black people in America, especially in the, you know, like 40s and 50s when he was growing up. And when we were doing, so we recorded this podcast and then right afterward we did our talk for students. And if you listen to that conversation, which is online, he alludes to, like I bring up some personal family and stuff. And he alludes to the idea that he has some pretty intimate stories that he could tell, but he's declining to do so. And I hope one day maybe he would be willing to dig into that stuff because it's not easy to be glib and flip it when you're talking about the kind of struggles that your own um, family members have gone through. But to your point about, you know, what if I get sick or what if I get cancer? It's, it's hard to look at the statistic, which I can't remember if I brought up in the conversation or not, but to look at the statistic where 50% of people yeah. who have cancer, yeah, families with cancer experience bankruptcy. Like that's not a, I planned or I didn't plan or I had insurance versus I didn't have insurance kind of a number. That's a, Almost everyone gets screwed if if someone yeah. in your life gets cancer, kind of a number, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I guess, like, I can see where, like, it's kind of hard because it does make it kind of sound like you're challenging someone's personal health. And, like, I don't mean to make it look like they, like, get private with somebody, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, it is the truth of the situation. And so, you know, I, I that example with me and my coworker is 100% true. Um, so if you want to use that one, you can. <laughs> well, well, thank you for that, Mary. <laughs> you, You're welcome. You, you joke, but I very might, I'm very may well use it because you know I'm sitting here on the internet all day, craving stories. We've got Eric reporting from the field. Like I'm, I'm living for your guys' anecdotal and, um, information. So thank you for calling in. I appreciate that, Mary. You're welcome. Have a good night. You too. All right, let's go to Kareem. What's on your mind, Kareem? Can you unmute yourself? Ooh, I caught, I can catch them off guard today. You guys got to look alive, look alive, Kareem. Get, get in the back of the line and I'll try to come back for you like I'm about to do for Sylvester right now, who wasn't looking alive when I called him in the last time. Sylvester, are you with us now? You gonna do this to us again, Sylvester? You really you're gonna make a fool out of me? All right, let's go to Henry. 
Henry, can you unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind? Hi, Bree. Thank you for taking hey, my call. Of course. What's on your mind this yeah. evening? Well, I listened to your interview with Mr. Lowry, and it was pretty interesting. I, you know, with people like this who are in positions of power, yet seem to not really understand the basic facts of situations like student debt, Mm-hmm. It really makes me wonder what kind of uh, strategy we can pursue where, like, what kind of value do they really provide if they can't even figure out the basic facts of the student, of uh, issues like student debt and they have to be almost spoon-fed the details of this because... And I don't feel like I'm being that unfair to Mr. Lowry because he is a professor of economics and questions of finance seem to me like they would fall within a domain that he would be expected to know a little bit more about because of how politically relevant they've been, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. I I do feel, you know, with, with all, all, all due respect, I, I do feel a little frustrated when I go into conversations where people have very strong opinions and the platform. Like, I don't mind if some person on the street doesn't know anything about student debt, like whatever. Mm-hmm. But people, you know, Glenn Lowry doesn't spend his time evangelizing against student debt cancellation, but he does spend a lot of time, obviously, advancing his own view of politics, which is not progressive, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he has a platform. He has a popular podcast. He and John McWhorter dialogue a lot. And the fact, I'm not saying that they are purposeful or useful idiots or anything like that because people make those accusations about me as a black person. But as a black person in a space that is not known for having a lot of black voices in it, they also are kind of held up as validating a broader worldview that Mm -hmm. I would argue is pretty hostile to the interests of black people. So, you know, I, I would... I would hope that someone in that position is being very careful about not, you know, not being used for ends that would hurt them and the people that they love. And I feel that way on the left. I know that there are people on the left mm-hmm. who want to use my existence as a way to say, well, we don't have a race problem on the left and we shouldn't ever talk about race and all of that stuff. And when I hear stuff like that, I try to be very pointed about pushing back you know if i critique Mm -hmm. the way identity is being weaponized to advance the interest of hillary clinton i will push back i will call out the extent to which jim clyburn uses his blackness as a shield for being terrible to black people but what i'm not going to do is not also call out the ways that other people within my own political community sometimes manifest anti-blackness or pursue projects that are against Mm -hmm. the interests of my own group and other marginalized groups you know so that can be difficult for me because I know that there are some left spaces I go into where if I mention race, I get as much pushback as I get from Charlie Kirk. And my credibility in some ways on the left is contingent on me not saying too much about that stuff. And that's malarkey. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I would, I, I, it is frustrating to me that Glenn Lowry has that position of power and authority as a black person on the right and doesn't seem to have really given that much time to thinking about some of these subjects. Yeah, I mean, I think the key point I want to focus on is that this isn't, like you said, this isn't just like a random person off the street. Mr. Lowry is a professor of economics, if I understand correctly. Mm-hmm. I, I happen to have a minor in economics, so 
I've talked to a professor of economics or two in my time, and frankly, I don't really have a very positive opinion of their views in general. I like, and this is a little funny, and it's a little, but just to give you a little more backstory on that, I, when I was at university, I literally followed, minored in economics and researched and got into Bitcoin early on and realized that there's a whole difference between the economics of reality and the economics of the university. The mm. economics of the university that I would believe that Mr. Lowry subscribes to would be more along the lines of Keynesianism and I, I, that and the sort of mainstream e economics that figures like Paul Krugman or the chairman of the Federal Reserve would subscribe to. And I don't want to say that they're fully wrong. They have their economic models that come to their economic results. But there are other economic uh, paradigms that are outside of uh, Keynesianism, advanced capitalism, that people like Mr. Lowry would never in a million years consider. And, but like, if you expect them to know about basic things like who holds the student debt calculator, uh, who holds that student debt value being the Federal Reserve, or sorry, being the government, then, you know, it's like, we expect so much of them or something, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. And this is like a little bit to my point earlier where imagine how fruitful a conversation, not between Glenn Lowry and me, because what do I know about economics? What do I know about socialism? What, I, what do I know about history? I'm just like your average, mm -hmm. your, have your average college student level of knowledge about everything, you know? But imagine if you sat down with like Fidel Kaboob, you know, the eco economist we had on to talk about MMT from Ohio. What if you sat down with someone like Kiangi Yamada Taylor or Cornell West? You know, I mean, like, what if you sat the... down with like an income calculator and calculated the <laughs> value of life that you could have on fifteen dollars an hour? Yeah, I mean, I mean that's that's like... literally yeah. I, I took a poverty law class in law school, and they made us do that. There was a like a day in class where we all picked like professions out of a hat and then you picked a certain number of children out of a hat. Do you have a spouse? Mm -hmm. What state you live in? And then, no, I think we all lived in Massachusetts because Massachusetts is a pretty good state in terms of social welfare benefits, social safety net. And that shit was bleak, man. And a lot of kids in that class, myself <laughs> included that, you know, hadn't really been confronted with budgeting as, you know, a single person with whatever salary you picked, the next number of kids and the cost of childcare. Holy shit. I mean, that's not means tested. <laughs> Childcare mm -hmm. isn't means tested. It doesn't stop costing like twenty thousand dollars, like two thousand dollars a month, uh, just because you don't make two thousand dollars a month. It's 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 a wake up call, and I think you're right that a lot of people, if if everyone had to do that experiment in college, high mm -hmm. school, middle school, yeah. <laughs> I just think it's so funny, like that, or maybe American or Kana esque would, be, as in Rokana, would be like. Mr. Lowry's ability to apply his uh, schema and templates to issues that he doesn't really know about. I mean, he just assumes that someone else is holding that debt. He, and like Mr. Khanna doesn't say that he wants to do research into what's going on in U the Ukraine conflict. Mm. Like these people openly mock us almost in their anti-intellectual approach to these issues. 
And I just think it's so interesting, like, to think about, like, how did they arrive at these positions where they almost just laugh at the idea of, like, even Googling something? I mean, I don't know. I, I, I've really, like, dissed them a lot, so I'm sorry about that. But <laughs> no, it's okay. Look, it's, I think it's the risk of living in the bubble. It's the, it's the risk of hegemony. It's, I think sometimes if you're, if you're used to being a little outside of the cultural norm, when I when people push back against me, and I and I obviously have a com- combative, confrontational personality. I mean, I'm not type. pushing back against you. No, 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 I'm not, I'm not saying you that. Talking to them, I think no, you no, do no. a great job of shepherding I, their egos. I'm not frankly. saying that you're pushing back against me. I, what I'm saying is, I am have a confrontational per- personality type. So my whole life, I have been in situations where I'm used to that, and I think a lot of people aren't. And it's very easy just to withdraw and assume that if someone disagrees with you, but the rest of the world is pretty much locked up with you, that you don't need to research mm-hmm. and follow up. Me, happily putting myself in uncomfortable situations all the time, am used to having to go home and Google something because I lost an argument. I had a very smart friend. I keep alluding to this friend of mine who clerked for Alito. Um, we went to college together, and he was conservative. And we used to get into it all the time. I remember standing in the stairwell freshman year having it out about abortion. And I was shocked that I like I lost You know, like I was losing the argument because he was someone who, as a conservative person who grew up in New York, was used to having to defend his views. And I was used to be being able to go around and say, yeah, obviously abortion right to choose rah, rah, without ever having to substantiate it or really get into it with anybody. And so I I do think that some of it isn't isn't that like people are like just terrible or thoughtless. But I do think that there's a comfort when you are spending when you spend so much of your life you know, in the majority in the overwhelming majority and a bubble that never really challenges you. Um, but thank you so much for calling in Henry. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for taking my call. Of course. Let's go to David who has been very forcefully advocating for himself in the comments for at least two episodes. So let's, let's hear what's on your mind, David. Yay. Thank you. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) What's going on? Hit me with it. Yeah, I, I mean, so one of my one of my big concerns here uh, is because having dealt with the University of California system um, for a while, uh, is <laughs> there's not a lot of talk about the quality of education that people are getting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's dropping a lot. It's really bad in like two thirds of the campuses at UC. They basically. What do you mean by that? What, is, oh, what does that look like, and to what do you attribute that? Uh, they flooded the classrooms. They don't have enough personnel to handle the number of students, so you'll have, like, you know, 100 to 1 student to TA ratio. And that's not an exaggeration. That's that's literally 100 to 1. So, so why, call, why is it? Because they, they don't have funding? Like, what's the issue? It's because they don't care about it. It's because nobody's managing the system. The... It has become very corporatized that mm-hmm. the people who are running it have financial interests outside of the school and just don't really care about it. And you see Office of the President has had this corruption problem for like 20 years now where they've been siphoning money away from the schools and redistributing uh, it um, behind the regent's back. Yeah, I mean, so obviously we all have heard ad nauseum about Reagan defunding the California system, and it does seem like you know, even even though there, if there's additionally corruption, that that can come as a consequence, a part and parcel of a generalized funding crisis. Uh, you know, fewer people, less oversight, all of those kinds of things, more desperation. 
Yeah, it's worse. It's worse than that for the UC system. It, it's literally mm-hmm. the UC office of the president has become this, you know, <laughs> cancer on the rest of it. Like there's something wrong with the office. They've gone through multiple presidents and they all seem to behave the same way. And no one can really figure out why we can't get a decent person in here, why they keep pulling money away from the campuses. You know, we know why they're flooding the school with students, which is that, you know, the state is demanding that they do it in order to get funding. Um, But they are not demanding that they educate the students, just that they get them in there. So what what conclusion do you draw from that? Are you bringing that up to make a statement about what you think the, you know, the future of public education is? Do you think we should not be arguing for public education? Are you arguing for more funding? Well, yeah, absolutely more funding. I am arguing for people to like actually look into like what is going on on these campuses in terms of the quality of education, because it's not exactly a secret. Uh, the schools are very open about how they can't teach the students that they have there, about how they don't, they can't provide them counseling, psychological services. They can't uh, provide them housing. They can't provide them food. Mm-hmm. I mean, like University of California is really, really driving homelessness over there because wow. they're pulling in students to the most expensive areas and they are not mm-hmm. building housing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, we had just a ton of of homeless students, you know, and the professors will make jokes about it. I had a professor that called one of our TAs tent because she lived in a tent in the woods. Jesus Christ. We got to look in the chat. We've got a, someone just logged in for the first time ever. And it is, is a UC Riverside TA. I hope this yeah. is, I mean, maybe it is tent. If you were tent, get in the queue, Tycho. We want to hear from you. <laughs> yeah. Mine, mine is UC yeah. Etsy. So I, I, I hope they're doing okay. Um, but my experience with the TAs is that the TAs were really badly abused at UC. They're treated as cheap labor and hmm. they're not, I mean, UCSC had a big problem where they were creating departments that didn't make sense for mm. a research university. And so they would make a department that's like, you know, IT services effectively. And then they'd bring mm. in graduate students, but mm. not have a graduation path for the grad students because there's not any research that they're doing. So now they've got like a handful of students that have been there for years and don't know when or if or how they could graduate. And this is just becoming very common across the system because it's been so sorely neglected by its leadership. Yeah. You know, I read an article recently, a teacher friend of mine sent it to me. It's from May 1st. It's called Why Critics of Angry Woke College Kids Are Missing the Point by David Marchese. Uh, I highly recommend it. I thought about trying to work it into a radar or something. Maybe I can get the author to come on and talk to me. It's actually an interview, so maybe I can get the um, woman interviewed uh, to come talk to me. She is, uh, uh, her name is Brown, Wendy Brown. Um, and she is the UPS foundation professor in the school of social sciences at Institute for advanced study in Princeton, New Jersey. And she makes, she makes the point you're making about what's happening with the, um, uh, uh, adjunctification of, uh, professors. She's taught making this point in the yeah. context of like a free speech argument. Cause this broader article is about what is really going on with this, 
free speech rhetoric on on school campuses, whether it's a problem and where and why. And she, yes. it's, it's a good article. She's because she's making some distinctions between, you know, the f- different zones on campus that should have different kind of speech standards. And, you know, people are conflating what happens in affinity groups and, you know, psychological support centers and all of this kind of stuff to what happens in the classroom and the different standards that should exist in different places. And specifically, um, the, in the, inter- the interview were asked, looking specifically at college campuses, what do you think are the biggest threats, threats to academic freedom? She says, what worries me is that we can't see the extent to which academic freedom is in serious peril these days from increasing corporate sponsorship of research, yada, yada, yada. But also, uh, where did she get? Where did she hop to this? Oh, I thought I, for sure that I had found this bit. But basically, you get the point that it was um, that the fact that everyone's a TA no one actually has tenure. And so while we have this belief ostensibly that there's all this academic freedom among professors, there are fewer and fewer professors that have that at all. So it's not just the students feeling timid. It's the teachers feeling timid. The the teachers can't bring the hammer down on students or teach in any forceful way or really push back against the students in a meaningful way. And that ironically, if conservatives really wanted there to be more pushback against some of the stuff that's maybe bleeding from kind of the affinity group style of discourse into the classroom where people it's not shouldn't be a free for all that there are some you know factual historical roots to some to some of this stuff then if you wanted more of that kind of pushback from professors then you need to empower professors by giving them actual tenure yes i mean at ucsc the problem i ran into was that they didn't have they had mostly lecturers so they're people Mm -hmm. that aren't even tenure track they're Mm -hmm. they're just people that are hired you know, to, to teach classes. And those guys have no power whatsoever. And they're completely at the whims of the student reviews. If the students mm-hmm. complain about a teacher, they're gone. So classes were constantly getting trimmed back, you know, constantly cut down, work was getting scaled back. Uh, I'm, my, my department was computer science. Um, mm-hmm. So I've been a programming STEM major. Um, but even that, like, they were just, like, not even in line with the, not even close to being in line with the uh, national standards set by the professional organizations uh, like ACM and IEEE. Um, and, and on top of that, you know, we, we got like the professional reviews by, and when I say professional reviews, I mean, these are the internal reviews that the department does um, where they hire like other professors and like people from industry. Like this one had one of the vice presidents from IBM was one of the reviewers, but they're, they're talking about just like how they can't teach computer science effectively. It's not possible with what they've set up. And they know this. And the school is well aware of this. And their response is, we know, but there's nothing we can do about it. So all we can do is keep bringing in more students and hope we can fix it in the future. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I found the quote, by the way, it's, it's here it is. It's also adjectification. The phenomenon of universities in this country today in which about 70% of teaching is done by non-tenure track faculty means that 70% of those who are teaching basically don't have academic freedom. Technically, they have it, but they don't have it in the sense that they don't have job security. They're dependent on student evaluations on the one hand and faculty yep. approval on the other. What does that mean? They have to teach in a way that's entertaining. They can't teach anything yep. too challenging. They can't teach basic mm-hmm. literacies that students need to understand mm-hmm. the world in a deep way. So adjectification, corporate, corporate, corporatization, and then the rankings and rating systems of programs and faculties and individual academics also mean that we are increasingly constrained by a narrow set of norms in the discipline by which we either rise or fall. And then, I mean, this is yeah. a great article. I Maybe I will reach out to her because there's a lot in here. Um. Uh, why critics of, of angry woke college kids are missing the point uh, by David Marchese and her name is Wendy Brown. Okay. 
I'll look at that. I think this might have been um, in the cause, Times. Because, yeah, because that, that is the exact problem that I encountered throughout the system. And that is what's causing this massive cascading failure. Because students really, a lot of them are not coming out of that system educated. And the professors are telling me, like, look, nobody learns anything in college. You learn it all on a job. I mean, this is this is part of their excuse, mm-hmm. you know, for why their students are doing badly. Um, mm-hmm. They they also have the one, the one they they say all the time is um, ten students can teach themselves just as well as one professor or TA. Who says uh, that? that? There were a lot of professors that said that, which and those exact words. It is exact. It's always the ten students. So it makes me believe that this is part of some language that they're passing around to their people to use. Um, yeah. So No, like I said, it's really bad. The state, like, I did not have uh, any professional criticism the entire two years that I was there. None. Mm. Mm. It was all student grading. And not student evaluation or critique, but student grading. Mm. And I mean, I was complaining to them that they couldn't teach critical so, some some very critical topics to computer science, and mm-hmm. they're like, "Well, why don't you teach it? We can offer you like two credits to teach a class to the other students." Mm-hmm. You know, and, and this is just like <laughs> that's I mean, wild. Just, yeah, I mean, I really think people need to start digging into the system a little bit and see like just how rotten it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it needs saving. It, it would be really interesting if part of the way the the left, the broad left, finally starts to disable the uh, the the right wing, the, the juice they're getting, the political juice they're getting out of hating college campuses, is to also make a critique of college campuses, but to just make a different, more pointed, more accurate one, instead of yeah, being mean, forced in this position yeah. where we're just defending them and also then defending a bunch of stuff that isn't good, also. Absolutely. I mean, I hope so. Because, like, I, I, it sounds like I'm really ragging on UC. Like, I think it shouldn't exist, but it's actually the opposite. I, I have mm-hmm. a very deep connection to UC <laughs> over mm-hmm. a, a long period of time, and I am horribly saddened by how badly it's fallen and how much it's failing the students the, and the faculty and the people of California. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that perspective, David. And you are inspiring me to try, if not to find these guests, to reach out to somebody else who can have a substantive left left critique of this stuff. We used to do this a lot more, I think, on the podcast. I used to have, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, I haven't had some like academic guests on, I feel like, in a minute. Or people who are, you know, we used to talk about identity politics and stuff like that and offer this kind of left critique of the things that the writer mad at. We did that CRT article with uh, uh, Osei, Rami from Pong, stuff like that. And I, I'm, I want to get back to some of that. So thank you for the kick in the pants, David. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I, I would absolutely love more people to look into this and give it coverage because when I was dealing with it, uh, they just like, there's a lot of students and professors angry, but mm-hmm. there's very little professional coverage. There's very little journalistic coverage that is actually bringing that out to people who are outside of the university systems. Mm, mm. Thank you, David. I'm glad I'm glad you advocated for yourself and I brought you up. I'm gonna come to you, Kareem. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You're in the back of the line, Kareem. I don't, you know, I'm I'm coming for you. Be ready. <laughs> Unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind. 
So I see that you're unmuted. I just can't hear you. And I don't know what that's about. Can I, can other people hear Kareem? I feel like I just, I don't know what's going on, Kareem. Oh, absolutely. Yes, Bree. Other people can hear him. Why can't I hear him? Wait, Alex WD, are you saying that absolutely yes, you can hear Kareem or absolutely yes, you're just genuinely enthusiastic? Okay, I'm seeing thumbs down. Kareem, I don't know what's going on, so I don't want all this dead space, but I will come back to you. Let's hear from Brian. Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind, Brian. Hello. Hey, Brian. Hey, Bri. Um, glad you uh, picked on me. It's the first time calling in, but. I was Welcome. Um, yeah, no problem. I was wondering if you're still looking for stuff to watch, like to binge watch or to listen to. Cause Always, because right now I'm in a dark place watching Sunset um, Strip, Sunset, whatever that one is about the real estate. Selling Sunset? Uh, Sun- yeah. Selling Sunset. Well, this is a podcast on um, YouTube. It's called In Classic Car. I don't know if you heard of it before, but. In Classic um, Car? No, In Class with Car. Oh, like David Carr? Greg Carr. He's a, Greg um, Carr, I'm sorry. The Howard professor? Yeah. Tell me why you like it. Um, look, he made me a leftist, low-key. Because um, he's like a whole socialist. But mm-hmm. he does it with the sort of Africana lens. Mm-hmm. And he he co-hosts it with Karen Hunter, which was interesting mm-hmm. to me. Because that was the first time I ever saw you, was when she interviewed you like back in 2020 about the Bernie campaign. Mm-hmm. And at the time, yeah, she looked you like at the time it was it was it was like I wouldn't say she was going at you, but like she didn't seem like the type of person to be on a podcast like that. I would but, say she was going at me. I would say that what listening to that episode is the most perfect di- distillation of neoliberalism. Um, in the Precisely. biggest threat to uh, progressive advancement in the United I, States of America is exactly Karen me, Hunter. <laughs> because, but see, see, that's what makes In Classic Car interesting to me because it started after that interview. Like, it started during the pandemic. And it's like two different people. Because, like, Greg Carr is like the antithesis of her. Like, she, like he's I know who Greg Carr is. I, I interviewed him on the Bernie podcast. Yeah, so like when I saw them together, I was like, this, this doesn't make any sense. And they've been doing it for like two years now almost. And like, mm. I mean, maybe maybe it's like a front, maybe it's an act, but I feel like her evolution is like, is, is one of the most interesting things I've seen on the internet. Mm. So I was wondering what your take on it well, would be. Well, I'll definitely listen to it and see if I think that there's an evolution. My feeling, my I know people like Karen, I'm... You know, I'm familiar with the types of people that there are. And in my experience, there is a type of, there are some people who will defer to what they perceive to be a kind of black authenticity and they won't challenge it because they feel like the, it's not about a political identification. It's an, an authenticity, authenticity identification. And professor Carr comes off as, you know, very knowledgeable, obviously, but also very authentic in his commitment to blackness, his uh, the way he presents himself, the way he wears dashikis, the way that he doesn't speak in like a strict academic lingo, but is willing to kind of like go hard in the pain as it were and like call out hashtag white he or whatever, you know, he has this very like, um, you know, uh, 
kind of 1960s approach to it that makes him seem like very bold and brave and admirable, even if you don't believe in his substantive politics. So I think Karen Hunter looks at someone like me, sees them as insufficiently and and authentically black. And also because I identify, you know, I was working on the Bernie Sanders campaign, sees me as some kind of a sellout. And her approach to me was rooted in that. Just Just like the whole reason I was even invited on her show is because it was on her show that she laughed along as um, Jason Johnson referred to me, Nina Turner, and every other black person yeah, who supported yeah. Nina Tur- uh, Bernie girl, yeah. Sanders as a you know misfit black girl. So mm-hmm. she you know felt that she kind of had to bring me on because that was a bad look for her. But you know the reason that all of them thought it was you know the reason I was there is because she thought it was funny that I the idea that I was not authentically black. And so the same reason I think that she behaved with such antipathy toward me because I'm inauthentically black. I think that she might like Greg Carr because she perceives him to be authentically black. Um, and that I suspect it has very little to do with substantive politics because if she calls out someone like Greg Carr, what does that make her? What does that say about her blackness and her own authenticity? I completely understand. And I would understand why your experience with her <laughs> would give you reservations to listen to. Because like, I, cause I was confused. Like, it was the biggest mind fuck. Because I basically went back in time to see the interview she did with you. And I was like, who the f-? Like, what? Like, because I just came back from the podcast. And I was like, I was rocking with it. Then I saw, like, <laughs> the interview that she did with you popped in my recommended. And I'm like, what the fuck just happened? Like, what? Like, it was the yeah. craziest thing. So, like, but look, if, if she's if she's evolved, I'm happy to hear it. I'm happy to see it. And I definitely, regardless, if she hasn't evolved, I almost feel like that's a more interesting podcast. I want to hear her try to step to Greg Carr and tell explain to him that we've got to support Walmart because Walmart has made so many black people managers. <laughs> I want to I want to hear yeah, him yeah. say some of that oh, malarkey yeah, to him and see what she, like, he says back. Yeah. Because I, I he's he's I I'm by I, I listen to the podcast for him most most of all because like, he's like a genius to me and like when I saw mm-hmm. him like because he's like the first black person because like I'm as a young black leftist it's hard mm-hmm. to see like black people go after like especially someone like Obama for instance an older person at that and so when I saw him do that it was like it looked he opened up my eyes in some ways and so. Mm-hmm. I just, mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And it's been overdue getting Professor Carr on the podcast. So thanks for flagging that as well. I've been not doing a very good job. I was doing so well with my diver- podcast diversity. And then we just hit a <laughs> we're, we're like six yeah. into like a white man streak. And I got to mix it up a little bit. So <laughs> I'm working on it. Having Aunt Stoller on is going to help me. But sometimes it is what it is. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. All right. Let's no hear problem. from Grace. How you doing, Grace? Oh, did Grace go away? Okay. If you, you know, change your mind, get back on the line. Uh, Seth, how are you doing this evening? Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. Hey. Um, hey. Is it cool if I talk about uh, abortion, the uh, Roe v. Wade and all that situation? Of course. Of course. Okay. Okay, so there were, uh, I guess, like a few points. So the first thing I want to talk about quick was a conversation that um, I'm pretty sure you had this morning on Rising. I think it was like uh, Robbie and and Kim were talking about this also, about um, the nature of what the protests for abortion will look like. And um, mm-hmm. they're basically saying, or, or Robbie was asking, like, does he think it'll get turn into riots or whatever? 
And, you know, you were kind of saying you think it'll be more chill than the George Floyd protest because of the nature of the people that'll be involved. Um, mm-hmm. So the way I see it, I mean, already I'm seeing this like, um, unfortunately, I have to see things from these people. But Tim Pool and Andy No are already focusing on, um, you know, incidents of whatever people getting violent or I, I don't even know because I don't even like to look very much into what they're saying because they're such liars and bullshitters but mm-hmm. um, the point is the the right, the Republicans are going to want to frame these protests in whatever way they can to delegitimize them just like they did with the Black Lives Matter protests I mean, you already see this with how they're they're so laser focused on the leak because they don't want to talk about the issue and if there's mass protests they, anything that happens, they're going to point to that and focus on it. And I even think that there will be provocateurs in there that they're purposely going to send mm-hmm. people in to to create problems. So, I mean, I just kind of wanted to say that quickly on that topic. But um, more importantly, yeah, I I think that's right. And I, if I could just add, I don't want to make everything about this, but it keeps coming up. That's part of why I have a resistance to talking about the slap. I'm sorry. Like, I feel the pressure on rising to, like, condemn Will Smith and violence is always wrong. But to me, it's just another – it's obviously not the same, and it's a microcosm, and it's a tiny little event between two rich people and nobody cares. But it's like it's, – it's like condemn Putin before we talk about NATO. Okay, like everyone knows that hitting people is wrong. I'm not in the second grade, you know, but what it becomes a really de- a deflection from having any kind of conversation about Chris Rock's long history of antagonistic statements about black women. He did a whole movie about how black women are so stupid and gross about our hair. Like, you know, we, we cannot have that conversation because someone needs you to like bend the knee and say the obvious thing that you shouldn't walk up at stage in the Oscars and hit someone in the face. Wow. Golly gee. It's this, it's the same thing. And so I, I hear that. It's not that I, you know, I had the whole thing with Talia about punching Nazi. I'm not one of the types who's like, yes, we should all go out and punch people in part because I feel like we're going to (laughs) lose. You know, that's, that's, I just don't think it's effective. And I think there's some conversation that needs to be had about the kind of civil disobedience MLK approach versus a Malcolm X approach. But I, I absolutely don't want to validate folks who want to make the entire conversation about condemning violence. I'm sorry. We all know that. It's a, it's a pretext for avoiding the underlying issue. So I entirely agree with you, but continue. Right. Yeah. And I agree with you. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, in terms of the, um, like what's actually going on with the protests. And then I want to talk a little bit about like what my goals are and what I want to see happen here. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, it's at, at this point, it's, you got socialist alternative is, um, there was, you know, they were, at least here in Philly, they were organizing the protests that happened on, uh, I guess, I don't even remember, it was yesterday or Tuesday, but things are like, so much is going on. But they have, uh, I'm pretty sure, I know here in Philly, they're doing protests on Saturday, probably all over the country. And mm. I just I just heard, because I'm following the thread, they're having a meeting, I'm not at it, but next Saturday, or next Friday, the 13th, Friday the 13th, they're calling for um, student walkouts, so... That's what's going on with them if people want to be involved with them. But there's another group that I work more with, which is uh, Rise Up for Abortion Rights. And I know people mm. at some point, even if not right now, people in the chat or whatever will start complaining about them. But what I'll say is they tend – other groups tend not to work with this group because there are political disagreements between other groups and then the people who founded this group. So that is what it is. But anyway, 
I, I happen to think that this group's strategy for organizing around this issue is actually better than the sort of like working class focus and that kind of language and rhetoric. I think it's better to focus on like the idea of abortion and an organization based specifically on that issue. So mm. anyway, they they organized high school and college student walkouts around the country today. And I, I was like looking on social media, there were a lot of really big walkouts. It was in New York at NYU, at uh, DePaul in Chicago, at uh, in San Francisco and Washington State high schools, colleges. So um, they're kind of doing the same thing, but with a bit of a different strategy. And they got, they're planning for like a big national protest next Saturday. And New York is going to be the the main one of all those protests. So, yeah. Well, what, do you, what do you think about this argument that, you know, even if it were a, a protest as big as George Floyd, at the end of the day, that protest didn't re- result in any legislation. So... Well, I'm sorry. So what, what, you know, what lessons should we learn from that? You know, I feel like someone like Shama Sawan or some of these um, organizers would say, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter unless there is some uh, economic threat. You're, you know, holding up the means of production, or at least you're doing like a Canadian trucker style, you know, civil disobedience that is inconvenient to industry continuing. You're blocking off streets, you're creating noise in business centers, that sort of a thing, as opposed to just walking around. Well, I was going to say that's the perfect question because it leads right into what I was going to talk about, which is what I want to turn the protests into. But mm-hmm. also to, to answer what you said about the sort of economic thing, actually, um, Sansara Taylor, who's one of the people who founded Rise Up for Abortion Rights, um, she actually had a tweet today where she was criticizing people. I wish I had it in front of me, but it, it was something about they were talking about, uh, I, I don't even remember exactly what, but basically what she was calling for was she was saying, that what should happen is any state that's passing these laws that ban abortion, all companies should pull out of the states and um, people should, you know, stop doing business and all kinds of like boycotts and stuff. So they're also calling for an economic component to this too, in addition to the protests. But mm. um, in terms of the question about the strategy for the protests, like I agree with you actually. And the way that I look at it is I think it's kind of the way you look at force the vote where it's almost like, people have to go through a certain process and learn that it doesn't work to get to the next step. So mm. the way the way that I kind of see these protests is I don't necessarily expect them to work, but the way I look at it is it's kind of a win-win either way, because if we do it and we get the millions of people in the streets and the government, they actually, let's say, somehow manage to pass the law like they abolish the filibuster or some Republicans find their way to get 60 to, to pass the law or whatever, then great, we win. But if we don't win, then, you know, and this is what I'm pushing for in the protests when I'm out there. This is the message I'm going out there with, which is we got to, if we get to that point, which is where I think we will, because I think that the, the Supreme Court is not going to change the decision. And I don't think that the Senate is going to pass the law. So what I think we should do is when we get to that point, we have to escalate the demands, turn the protests into something bigger, make it about more than abortion, make it about democracy. And that's, you know, that's my theme. Every time I call in, you can tell them the you know, the democracy guy, but, um, and, and I think that like, you're really, from what I'm hearing you say on this issue, you're on the right track. You're talking about like structurally how the Supreme court is set up as this wealthy minoritarian institution, like these right wingers, they love to talk about. And it's so, Oh man, you can see what they're doing. I know you see it because obviously mm-hmm. you, you, 
you hit on this, but like they like to point to, oh, we're protecting minority rights as if, oh, you're protecting, you know, racial minorities and people who've been oppressed. Bullshit. You're protecting Mm -hmm. wealthy people, that minority. And I Mm -hmm. think we have to expand that conversation and talk about the whole structure of the system. And again, this is what I'm talking about. Like when we go down the streets, I got the, I got the megaphone. I'm out there with my people. And eventually when I get up there, I'm talking about like five of the nine Supreme Court justices that are on there right now were appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote. That's because of the Electoral mm-hmm. College, which is an undemocratic institution. That's Bush, that's Trump. Then you have the Senate, which is a bunch of things you can say, but the main ones I say are, if you look at the composition, the Democrats on the Senate are represented by 27 million more votes than the Republicans. And say whatever you want. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the Democratic Party, but that's the truth. They're 50-50. Mm-hmm. Yet 27 million more votes for those Democrats mm-hmm. and the Republicans. I mean, the language, the way that I say it, it's a little complicated because, like, it's not necessarily 27 million more people because each state has two senators. So you can maybe split that up. But 27 million more votes for the Democrats and the Republicans. Then you have Wyoming, 600,000 people, two senators. California, 40 million people, two senators. And then my favorite one, which I always like to kind of throw in there towards the end to make like a, a big point, is. James Madison, who was the father of the Constitution, the fourth president, he said the Senate ought to protect the interests of the opulent minority from the majority. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. what else do you need right there? That's the guy mm-hmm. who wrote the damn thing telling you what the point of this all was. So mm-hmm. what I'm saying to people is with all of that in mind, look, what we need is we need a new electoral system that deals with these problems and it you know, with We Want Democracy, which is this group that, like, small at this point, but, you know, that I was part of co-founding, that's what we're, that's what we have, is we have a set of demands, and, you know, with, like, a, a proportional representation system, and the recalls, and getting rid of the Senate, the Electoral College, stuff for voting rights, etc., and, you know, new elections based on the new system, and then a new government that would be elected, and the way I look at it is, if the electoral system is illegitimate, then, and it has been since day one, then the government is illegitimate, that's elected by that system. And if the government is illegitimate, then all of the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court that have been appointed by that government, they are illegitimate. So along with a new government, we need a completely new federal judiciary and Supreme Court. And I think that's kind of where I like, I come to you because you are a much better person than I am for this. Like you went to Harvard Law. You know this stuff. Mm, I am, but I don't like that. <laughs> I don't want to be a lawyer. I resent so much that I have to keep talking about these legal topics on rising. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, this is this is a way where you can use your knowledge and your skill for something good that's going to help us. This isn't like the you know being caught up in. This is coming up with something new based on how you know the system works now. Like I'm, I went to school for computer science, right? So I come up with the ideas and I learn stuff on my own or whatever. But like, I'm talking about what would a new federal judiciary looked like in a new Supreme Court. What would be a democratic court system? The, the way that I conceptualize it, it, it is like something where, you know, the new government, which would be proportional representation, they would proportionally select the judiciary and the Supreme Court. But, you know, that's just like a very um, elementary form of it. And it's something that I think you, people like you, could come up with something better. Well, I'm going to I'm going to unlock the episode where we were talking about what court reform should look like, because I think it's an amazing episode and it's so relevant. We talk about abortion. We talk about all of these things in the episode. We were supposed to unlock it today. I have to check in with producer um, about 
I think what's going on there. Was it like episode 78? Because I got an 88. Did it get unlocked? Is it is it in the so I'm looking at Patreon. I thought it was going to come back to the top of Patreon. But I guess it's only unlocked. It's in the feed. It's I in the fe- some, Apple feed or whatever. I got some email notification, but I must have read it. So it's not showing up in my unread. So I'm not sure. But I, I think that one was I think they unlocked it. Okay, good. I could listen to that. If you didn't listen to it before, it's worth listening to. Because I think that I really like where Nico's going with court reform. But thank you so much for calling in, um, Seth. Yep. Take care. All right. Take care. And thank you for all that you're doing out there. Uh, let's hear from Sonia. I don't recognize Sonia's face. Unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind this evening. Hi, Bree. Thanks for taking my call. Um, so I feel like people should be aware of the fact, I I know people talk a lot about how electoralism doesn't work. And, you know, I personally haven't voted for a president since Ralph Nader. Um, Mm. But I feel like the local level is really where people should be focusing their attention right now because of things like defund the police. Um, You can make that happen at the local level through the budgeting process, but right now, I've noticed a lot of the people running at the city and county level are not only like pro-police, but they think we should expand those budgets. So even the most progressive candidates are saying things like, oh, we should have social workers go out with police officers, but there's no talk of reallocating funds. So I really feel like if people paid more attention to that and got people into office who at the local level were willing to um, think about those policies and reallocate funds that we wouldn't really need to put pressure at the federal level for certain policies to get implemented. I think you're entirely right. And I'm guilty of that federal focus as well. You know, I think there's something Maybe I'm just speaking out of my own ignorance and other people don't feel this way. But for me, at least, there's something that's deeply mysterious about local politics because it's not covered in the same way. Like I was I was just saying to a friend of mine, like, oh, God, I got to figure out how to register and where I vote in D.C. because this mayoral election is coming up and I want to make sure I don't miss it. And just like I feel I can feel the anticipatory anxiety of just like doing some, you know, figuring out that basic bureaucracy of like, where am I voting in my new house? And I haven't switched my address to my old apartment. And this is going to be an issue. And da, 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 da. and that's a problem. It's part, and it's a it's it's mysterious in part because we're not having those kinds of conversations about it. I'm not entirely sure what to do about that. Sometimes I think to myself, oh, if I had a kid, it would be nice to I want to be the kind of family that where we would go to town hall meetings you know, where I would instill that kind of civic engagement, but I don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, you know, yeah, go ahead. I didn't, I didn't really start um, paying attention to this stuff until I was in my mid twenties and started covering it as a reporter. Mm-hmm. So I was learning on the job, how this stuff works. And frankly, it's really appalling the kind of things that they get away with. Um, and, you know, I feel like I do my part in trying to inform the community about what's going on. And I have seen it make change as far as like, you know, preventing certain projects that are like an asphalt plant without any kind of environmental safeguards 800 feet away from a river, you know, Um, that kind of stuff is happening in everybody's community. And if people aren't paying attention, they can just easily get away with it. 
A hundred percent. I mean, uh, did you cover, can you tell me a little bit more about, were you, were you one of these kind of local reporters working for a local paper that got decimated in the, the great calling uh, of Facebook and all of the ad incentives that, that shut down so much, so much local coverage? Well, I've been working for a while at a paper owned by Alden uh, Capital, which is a hedge fund that's consuming local papers everywhere. So Mm. when I started at the paper I'm working at now, the newsroom had so many more people. And just in the time that I've been working there now, we have five people in the newsroom and we have our daily quotas of stories that we need to produce. So you can't really do anything too thoroughly, but the more consistently you report, you notice trends over time. Like if you're covering court, you notice who does and doesn't get bail. And I'm pretty sure you guys already know what the answer is to that. Um, Mm -hmm. It seems like, you know, a lot of these things, I didn't realize them until I started actively focusing on them. And I just feel like, you know, local media has been decimated um, to the point where a lot of it is press releases where I grew up. They don't even cover the city council or the planning commission anymore, just because Mm. all of the papers got consolidated into Mm. one paper that covers like two counties, which include like 20 cities, (laughs) which Mm. one paper can't do good journalism um, that way. So I really don't know what the answer is because I feel like it would be nice if people had journalists they could rely on to give them Mm -hmm. the facts about meetings ahead of time so they know to show up. But in most communities, you can't rely on that. So you kind of just have to know, like, look at the agendas, know when the city council meetings are and if it's one that you should or shouldn't attend. But that's why I think it's like people should make civic engagement just an active part of their life at the local level, just because that's where they have the most power. And I mean, if they don't pay attention to that, it's the difference between the people who are homeless in your community getting housed or, you know, having their encampments completely swept off the street and treated like they're garbage, you know? Yeah. While you were talking, I literally Googled DC city council events there's a legislative meeting on May 10th. Like I'm looking at the schedule. It's all virtual. And it feels, I wonder if part of the problem is that so many liberals and progressives live in cities also. Like when I, when I talked to my mom, she and my stepfather sometimes go to local meetings in, or they did before they moved to Cleveland in, in, in Mount Vernon in Westchester where they lived. It's a city just North of the Bronx uh, in Westchester. And they would talk about it and it's always seemed very interesting to me, but it also seemed like even though Mount Vernon is like a big place compared to a lot of other places in America, so much more intimate and less intimidating. They like, they, they knew their mayor, they knew people in the community in a way that is just not what it, what it is if you live in New York city or potentially living in DC. And I wonder if part of the issue here is there's been so much that part of why the, the right seems more engaged with local politics than the left is because of the, distribution of us in urban versus rural areas and a feeling that perhaps, you know, Eric Adams is so attenuated from, from me and my life and who I am. He's just like some celebrity as opposed to if I lived in a smaller town. 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's where the organizing can come in. If you can kind of start working with people in your community on these issues and try to, you know, get things pushed and like ordinances amended with certain language at these meetings and prove to be effective, you know, you can trust the people that you're working alongside to do the right thing, especially if they go through that whole process. Um, but I feel like if they start off in the Democratic or Republican Party and don't really do it independently or through the Green Party, um, if they do have ambitions for higher office, they start making compromises early on that, you know, you can't really afford people to be making. So um, if people did start participating, I feel like they would need to have to do it outside of that two party system in order to really try to create some sort of other avenue for everybody else. And the more successful they were at it, the more you could trust them to make that kind of change at, you know, higher levels of government. Yeah, I, I, I agree entirely. And I really appreciate you calling in. I always like to hear from, you know, journalists and practitioners and people who have been in the mix for a really long time. I hope you call back again. Um, and give us your perspective on some other specific things. Are you covering anything right now of interest that we should be paying attention to? Um, well, I would just say people should pay attention to the local political campaigns happening in their communities right now. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, if they are interested in, um, you know, what's happening with the environment, um, the tribes in our area are doing a lot of amazing restoration work just as far as getting dams removed and reintroducing um, species that haven't been, you know, in the area, like the California condor, uh, mm. which almost went extinct. And, you know, they just reintroduced the first two condors, I think, mm. this week. So, um, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. It's like a Humboldt County is a beautiful place if anyone ever visits. Thank you for that. Look, it's not great that they're on the brink of extinction, but I like, I like that. That's some positive, that's some positive silver lining for this conversation to know that there's hopefully, hopefully two condors out there procreating and living their best life. So thank you, Sonia, for calling in and leaving us with that. <laughs> Thanks. Have a good night. Bye. You too. All right, Sylvester, I'm not going to try with you again. <laughs> Can you unmute yourself and see if this works this time? Third, third time's yeah, charm. We good. We good. Okay. We, good. we, all, we all here. I miss you too. How about we start off like that? <laughs> been a minute. Been Sylvester? It has been a minute. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we've been working, but no, I'm well. I'm well. How, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm feeling good about it being the end of the week. I don't have to wake up at dawn to do rising tomorrow. I'm going to get my call in done before 11 o'clock and have my evening to relax and get to bed on time. I'm, I'm, I've already worked out. I'm feeling pretty good. I'm on the up and up. I thought you, I thought you moved the time up because you had a date. No, not tonight. Not tonight. <laughs> not tonight. I'm, just, I'm trying to take myself out tonight. Y'all, you try to take yourself right, in. Right into bed. Okay. <laughs> I'm an easy date. <laughs> easy date. <laughs> On the first one, too. Okay, no, that's good. That's good. You know, you know what I was going to ask you? What? I've been seeing what uh, Breaking Point's been doing. Oh, yeah? They looking like death row. They just bringing every, they signing everybody. You know, oh, <laughs> records. It almost, yeah, they're moving like Suge Knight now. It almost seems like, 
Like the um those conversations that we're having about this, you know, creating this larger network, you know, of a left media. Sound like they've been listening to your podcast and maybe they just said, all right, we're just going to go ahead and do it. It's lovely to see, you know, Jordan Sherrington being in the mix, the regular segments with David Sirota over at the lever. Like that's what it needs to be. I peeped that. And then, so what have they, have they dropped the bag off at your what do new you mean? <laughs> Well, um, you know, Crystal reached out a few weeks ago about me doing a, like a regular, you know, segment, like flipping something, a part of a conversation on a episode and doing kind of like a radar style thing over there. And the reason that I haven't is that I, I honestly don't have the bandwidth. I, I, this, uh, I'm like, I want to be my own boss. I don't want my no, own. I don't want no, to be that's not it at all. But I don't have like, I don't have the resource. Like I don't have the resources to hire up a bunch of people. I can barely, like I'm not posting any more to the bad faith um, Instagram account. Like I just gave up on it. I, I don't like, I'm overwhelmed. I got to say, I don't know what to do. I'm overwhelmed. I can barely schedule episodes on bad faith, like doing rising <laughs> in this and Colin it. Maybe I'm weak and I'm just not uh, well organized yeah. and I don't have enough chutzpah because obviously Crystal is doing it with kids and like a whole, a lot of other obligations that I don't have, but I'm at my limit, I got to say. And so unless there's a world where I get such a huge cash influx that I start, like I can hire like two or three staff members, someone who handle my email, you know, someone who can do my schedule, someone who can be a, a substantive producer. I mean, like I, I love our producer. That doesn't mean a shade, but I, I'm the one that, you know, sends out emails and schedules podcasts. You know, if someone could take over all of those responsibilities and I could just prepare and do my job on camera, then maybe we live in a different world. But I feel like I've got too many irons in the pot like, you know, a couple of very, my, some of my favorite podcasters just asked me to do a start a new fun podcast with them. And as much as I would love to do it, it took me like three days to even respond to their texts, much <laughs> less, you know, show up for the podcast. So I just don't, like, I just don't see it happening. Something has to give. <laughs> so did, did everybody hear that? If you can send emails, if you can do all the, <laughs> this is, this is a job opportunity of a lifetime, right? <laughs> My really? best friend's been wanting me to hire her. She, as she puts it, for her to be my wife. Uh, she's oh. working for a. She works. She's working for a governor and doesn't make a ton. She's like, if I match, if you match my salary, I'll do it. And I'm close. Like I think, mm. I think I can. <laughs> I mm. think I can just about swing it. I just gotta like sign some contracts on the dotted line and see what my long term finances look like. Um, but I'm close. I'm close. Okay, so if anyone in the chat can go below that offer, I mean, that can get <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit. Okay, we still want You're to be so able to. You're so ridiculous. I'm trying to help you out. That's it. But you know? but also, Sylvester, I'm I'm wrestling with what my value add should be as I continue to stretch myself thinner. It's like, what's valuable? Is it valuable for me to go on radar? Uh, go on rising and talk about some subjects that are important to me. Talk about other subjects that I don't give a shit about. You know some of the COVID stuff, you know, is it useful for me to be in this kind of corporate seven, seven minute segment kind of a world, or is it more useful for me to be spending, committing my time to doing substantive long form interviews that I have prepared for, you know, is it useful for me to be doing, you know, radars in that context? Cause radars, I've got to tell you, it's so time consuming. I have not figured out how to write a radar in less than like four or five hours. So, you know, I, if I'm going to spend all that time, should I just be writing articles, you know? should I just be writing articles and going back to being a journalist and publishing and like spending, taking the time to write something that's more researched and substantive than just a radar, something that's got citations and, 
you know, makes a bigger point and has more longevity than a radar that it's, it's old news the second it airs. I don't know. Like these are the things I'm thinking about. And that's also the kind of thing I'm thinking about whether, when I think, do I want to commit another chunk of hours this week to repackaging my product to be a part of the breaking points world. I love the idea of working with that team. I think that what Crystal is doing is amazing and so admirable and I'm so glad she's doing it and I want to be, I want to contribute to it, but only if it's, you know, a value add, I don't want to just be doing it to be doing it. You know, what can I do differently over there that I'm doing here? What can, is it about growing the platform? Is it about expanding my audience? Like, what is it? I'm, I'm just, I don't know. I'm just wrestling with those questions. Right. And and just if anyone didn't catch it, we might need a ghostwriter for Brie. These these along <laughs> on the right hand. If anyone is interested in ghostwriting, uh Bree is basically like the, the Drake uh, podcast. <laughs> we don't make a hit, okay? We just might get a little writer to, you know, take some hours off of the workload. Um but you know, I guess that I guess it you know kind of depends on. I mean, what's what's more important, your your, your passion or your pension? Uh, you know how much uh, you know because I'm thinking what I thought they were doing, right? I thought that what Breaking Points was doing was mm-hmm. like they're going to try to bring everybody under their umbrella. But then the way that you're putting it is, it kind of sounds more like independent contractors that'll just do a little guest spot. And it's not this wide ranging revenue sharing worker co-op type of thing that they're building. Well, I'm not sure what their long-term plans are. Maybe it's worth having Crystal and Sagar on to talk about it. What, you know, what their vision for it all is. Um, I, we haven't, I haven't spoken to her in person in a while. Uh, So, you know, I think that's a really interesting question. Certainly whatever they're doing is working and it's, Lovely to see, you know, I think Jordan Sheraton, you know, I said that when I had him on last fall is really undervalued. He's one of the few people who's on the ground doing first person reporting and it matters. It changes the character of the news. David Sirota being one of the few people who's doing investigative reporting on the left, David Dan and the knowledge of what's going on in the Hill. I know people feel the way they feel, but Ryan Grimm and all the institutional knowledge he has and obviously having the intercepting reporters going to the Hill and talking to people and actually uncovering stuff doing reporting. It's invaluable. There would be there's nothing else, else for us to talk about if people weren't doing that. And the ratio of talking heads to journalists is not great. <laughs> we need more journalists, which is something I asked myself too. Like I, I, I was starting to write a radar about, um, I was going to maybe do today's on uh, Biden's visit to the Raytheon plant down South and, you know, the push of all the people in the news talking, all the defense contractor people who don't disclose who they work for are talking about how many javelins we need to send to Ukraine and how we need more billions of dollars going and, and all of this stuff in the revolving door of it all. And I sat down, I was opening open secrets and I was like, this is more, this is more time intensive than what I have. Like someone needs to report this out. Someone needs to go through all of this, these, this, these financial disclosures and report this out, but I can feel my instinct is to write this as a story, and I don't have time for that. I got to churn out this radar and get in bed so I can wake up at you know dawn and like get into the studio. So, what what would you rather do if you had it your way? <sighs> my ideal workflow scenario. Yeah, I want so much more time to read things. 
I hate feeling like I am continually asked to speak on things and my knowledge base is not growing commensurate with the things I'm being asked to talk about. Do you know what I mean? I feel a little like a one trick pony sometimes. And like, I would need to expand my reservoir of knowledge and experience by spending time reading, spending time doing what Sonia is talking about and spending time in, in going to doing like local civic participation, going to school board meetings. Like imagine I'm sitting here talking about CRT. I had a week to travel around and go to some, some school board meetings and do an episode about what is actually going on. I had time to go and travel around and talk to teachers in Florida and get some sense of what is in the textbooks that have been banned. Cause I couldn't have time to like access and read the textbooks, you know, just right. imagine a world where instead of all of us just talking shit all day, <laughs> one <laughs> of us, just one of us had actually gone and investigated something. So what you waiting on? Are you guys going to be okay and like not unsubscribe from the podcast if I disappear for two weeks and go on a reporting trip? Because I, I got to tell you, I feel a lot of pressure to keep these episodes coming twice a week because, you know, that's what's sustaining my life. Also, at the same time, you know, that's that's the one drawback of this like subscriber model. It's great because I'm independent from like the YouTube clicks and all of that. But it, is, it does mean, you know, you got to keep feeding the beast you gotta and the kind of the, the real space you need. Like when I was a journalist... I, I know, don't don't roll your eyes at me, Sonia. I know I was in a very lucky position, but unlike most journalists, the Intercept allowed me to. I basically wrote an article a week at best. Article, you know. Week at, the, oh wow, yeah, Sonia. And I had I had time to think about things. It was my takes. Like I think I not to not to brag, but I think my I had some ten out of ten takes. All my takes are good. Like shit, you're not going to find an old article of mine that I feel like bad about. But I don't feel that way anymore. My takes were good because they were thoughtful. And I had like a week or weeks to, to germinate on them, you mm-hmm. know? These days, it's like someone throws something at me on Rising. Oh, what do you think about Dave Chappelle being attacked? I mean, like, no one should be attacked. No. I don't know anything about this story. Like, I don't know who did it. I don't know what their motives were. I don't know if we can blame Will, this on Will Smith. You, you should ask Ja Rule what he thinks about it. I think that's always ja Rule. Ask Ja Rule what he thinks about it. Why, why do I care what Ja Rule thinks about it? Oh, the Dave Chappelle joke. No, it went over your head. It's okay. <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, I don't. You I never don't heard know. that Dave Chappelle joke? Uh, no. Are you going to tell it to us? <laughs> he does it a lot better, but he does a lot. Just look up Dave Chappelle and Ja Rule. Oh, I'm already like, Googling oh, it. I'm okay. already Googling. Is this going to be appropriate for me to play? Am I going to get canceled oh, for even playing no, this in the show? You know, you good. You good. Okay, I YouTube is loading it. Yeah. Okay, it's only one minute long. Yes, real short. Okay. Yeah, man. Oh, sorry. Wait. We need someone to. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Here we go. Yeah, man, they would. But I'm like, for real, why? Why you care so much what the Dixie chicks say? It's not like they political scientists and then they just they just they can sing good. You know what I mean? Stop worshiping celebrities so much. Just don't listen, pay attention. I remember right around September 11th, uh, Ja Rule was on MTV. That's what they said. So we got Ja Rule on the phone. Let's see what Ja's thoughts are on this tragedy. Who gives a fuck what Ja Rule thinks at a time like this? Nigga, this is ridiculous. I don't want to dance. I'm scared to death. I want some answers that Ja Rule might not have right now. When bad shit happens to me, I'll be in the crib like, oh my God, this is terrible. Because somebody, please, 
Find y'all rule, get hold of this motherfucker so I can make sense of all this. Where is Jaw? Where is Jaw? Help me, Ja Rule. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so the funny part is you had the same reaction. <laughs> what the fuck is with Ja Rule thinks about? <laughs> <laughs> that was good yeah 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 so that's why i feel like i feel like i'm jaw rule man like there are a lot of things that i am the jaw rule to that situation like why are you even asking me man i don't know like i don't know ask someone who was there i don't know i don't know and it's like you're not allowed to say i don't know in this business i don't know guys <laughs> like but that that's part of the problem is that enough people don't say they don't know and shut up when they don't know about something that's part of the problem so, you know, instead of, you know, always feeling like you got to go with the flow and like you, I understand the whole like feed the beast thing. Um, but I also do think that people really do appreciate authenticity. I think that even if you wanted to take a week off to go do, you know, some investigative reporting, but then you communicate that with people, like people appreciate that authenticity that, hey, listen, I can't keep up with the algorithms and everything that they're asking me to do um, and, and do a pod right after something happens like it, it's crazy how we even get our minds trained around it because when that role um decision dropped mm-hmm. i was thinking oh brie about to hop on the call in like the well second- i try i try what's funny is that i part of why i was stressed this week is i was scrambling furiously like everybody else to find some abortion as experts some constitutional scholars to come on and talk about it right and i spent all of my tuesday trying desperately to schedule someone for wednesday so we could do a last minute episode for thursday and the scheduling got to be such a clusterfuck. I said to myself, Brianna, what are you doing? Everyone's free on Friday. Just record it on Friday. Abortion's still going to be imperiled on Monday. And it will mm-hmm. just be a Monday episode. And because I spent so much time trying and failing to put that episode together, I was like, well, now I don't have a Thursday episode. I said, okay, screw it. Let me give them this Glenn Lowry episode. It's a free episode anyway. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah. And, that's, and, and I'll unlock this other premium episode. And that's, that's what I got to do today. Like, that's the triage situation of today. You but the thing was, I appreciated it because we're so used to being fed. Sometimes someone got to close the fridge and put a lock on it, you know. And <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, because of Netflix, we binge and we stream and we do all that. We not we don't we forgot what it was like to wait a week to watch mm-hmm. the show that you wanted to watch. Um, and then that what that told me is that you know what that she's taking her time because it's easy to just say, all right, boom, I'm gonna put something out right now just to give you something. But then yeah. I looked at it like, all right, she's not trying to rush it. And then I think that that even, you know, people respect that and appreciate that when you actually take the time and when you bring something to the table, when you have something to bring to the table instead of just putting food out there just to put food out there. Well, I appreciate that. And I and also do, I think, I mean, I think the Lowry interview was fascinating. Obviously it was already out there in the world. He put it out on his channel, but as someone who, again, like I like my routines. I like what comes up in my podcast queue. I don't oh, yeah. o- often go out of my way. You know, I thought it was useful to put it there as well. And I will be putting together a fabulous abortion panel for Monday's <laughs> episode. Y'all, if y'all worried about it. Yeah. it, don't worry. It's coming through. Maybe I should have done an emergency call on. That's a good point because I am no. down a call on because I skipped last last Monday because I was traveling to Arizona for Charlie Kirk. 
you're not down anything. You exactly where you're supposed to be. So don't don't put that pressure on yourself. We ain't gonna put that pressure on you. I think as long as you you know you being transparent and authentic and communicating just the way that you are today about what your bandwidth and capacity is, people respect that a lot more than you hiding that. And then just like, all right, I'm going to just throw out this interview that's been out because he put it out and I didn't have time to put together what I would have wanted to put together. <laughs> you know, then it just looked like, all right, she don't respect us. <laughs> thinking we ain't going to notice. There's content. <laughs> if you guys are hurting for content, like the risings are out there, you know, the audience in the comments, I'm trying not to look. They are very much not having me any kind of nuanced opinion. They think I'm a liberal. It's kind of hilarious. You know, they're insisting that I love mandates and all of this kind of stuff. And what what am I? I'm not going to be bullied into being a right winger. I know that much is true. So <laughs> like, the they're going to keep they're going to keep not liking my nuanced takes. They I did a radar today about how, like, you obviously can't put the Supreme Court leaker in prison. Morons. <laughs> like, you obviously cannot incarcerate this person. They did not break any laws, even if you don't think that what they did was right. You can't lock up everybody that you think did something wrong. And like, they are not having it. They're like, well, I don't understand why. I'm like, okay, this is why I don't read the comment section. So if you want content and you want to leave some comments on the rising to fight with the people that I can't fight with without looking like I'm insane. (laughs) There's more Brianna content out there. It's not that I'm hurting for, it's not that I'm not out there. And I appreciate you Sylvester for booing me for being supportive of me. Of course, for Queen. hitting me with a little bit of Dave Chappelle, for reminding <laughs> me of fantastic classics sung in my I late high school, that, early man. college years. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you all for joining me today. We've had a lovely two hours. I'm going to escort myself with a pint of some dairy-free ice cream to bed and some selling sunset. Love you guys. Continue to clip and post and circulate on social media. Let people know what we're doing here. I really enjoy it. I'm looking forward to this Monday episode. I'll be recording it tomorrow with three fabulous panelists. It's going to be great. We're going to resolve all of this. Thank you to all of the organizers that have called in, all the journalists that have called in, the TAs, your life experiences, the teachers. Your life experiences really enrich this conversation. We couldn't do this alone. I'm glad we have each other. Take care of yourself and keep the faith. And I wanna know, is it as good as, as it gets? Cause we've been through the worst time and the best time. But it was our time, even if it was part time. Now they've been looking at me, smiling at me, laughing like we wasn't happy. But not knowing that we're growing and we're getting married. Hard loving, straight thugging. Baby, I ain't doing this here for nothing. I'm here to get it popping, hopping. Let's ride out in the bins, head blowing in the wind. Sun glistening on my skin. Hey, I'm nasty. You know me.
to the limit and I love it Now I can breathe again, baby, now I can breathe again Now people screaming what to deal with you and so-so I tell them to find their biz, but they don't hear me though Cause I live my life to the limit and I love it Now I can breathe again, baby, now I can breathe again Yeah, yeah Yeah, yeah Yeah, yeah 